0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. We're continuing on in the series Diversity in Early Christianity. This series looks at the variety of groups, including groups that have traditionally been called heresies, as well as the struggles that are going on among different groups of Jesus followers in the first centuries. In the last couple of episodes, we looked at the Johannine Epistles, and pinpointed some of the opponents that were being dealt with in those letters. Now we move on to Ignatius' epistles. Ignatius of Antioch is an author whose writings, his letters, ended up being collected together in what scholars call the Apostolic Fathers collection. So if you're interested in reading the letters themselves, you'll need to look that up, Apostolic Fathers, on the internet or at your local library. In this episode, I begin by introducing Ignatius of Antioch and his letters briefly, before delving into the opponents that he deals with in his letters. The first group of opponents that we deal with in this episode are the Docetic opponents, the opponents who believe that Jesus only seemed to be human. He only appeared to be human, but was in fact a divine being. In the next episode, we delve into what Ignatius might call the Judaizing opponents, Opponents of Ignatius, who are followers of Jesus, who nonetheless follow Judean practices in a way that Ignatius feels is inappropriate. So once again, we're using these two examples of opponents attacked in the literature as an avenue into the variety of early Christianity. I hope you enjoy this episode in the podcast. So what I'd like to do is take a look at the Epistles of Ignatius as a further avenue into the diversity of early Christianity. What I've been doing today and in the previous discussion was using the opponents that we encounter in literature as an avenue into this diversity of early Christianity. Traditionally, these opponents would be labeled heretics. So we're in the whole context of early Christian heresies as they would traditionally be called. But we know that that's a bit of a value judgment. The notion of a heresy is to say something's wrong. And obviously Ignatius's perspective is the opponents he's attacking are wrong. And yes, in the Johannine epistles, John the Elder's perspective was the people who left the community were wrong. But as historians, we're not even interested in who's right and wrong. <laughs> What we're interested in noticing is that there's a diversity in early Christianity such that schisms are taking place like happened in the Joannine epistles. And then we can try and study what can we know about those other Christian groups that have been lost to us. They've been lost to us with the exception of people attacking them. We don't have writings by the people who left the Joannine community. We don't have writings by the opponents that Ignatius is going to be discussing today. And so, in a way, we're trying to get at these opponents and understand them better to see some of the variety of early Christianity in the first couple centuries here. And we're already into the second century because Ignatius' letters are usually dated to about 110 CE. Many scholars place the Johannine epistles within the region of Asia Minor, although it's not certain that it comes from there. In the case of Ignatius, we're certainly in Asia Minor, and some of the opponents we'll discuss today link up well with the sort of opponents we saw in the Johannine epistles. Let's get into some of the introductory matters about Ignatius' epistles before we go on to look at these opponents. Ignatius was a bishop, an overseer, the main leader, at least he thought he was the main leader, of the church in Antioch in Syria. It's that same Antioch that we read about when we were working through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and he went through the history of some issues, and he mentioned an encounter with Peter, and he had a run-in with Peter at Antioch. That's the same Antioch we're talking about here. It became quite an important center for early Christianity. Seems to have been sort of the the base for Paul's activity to some degree. There are indications in Ignatius' own letters that there were difficulties that occurred, not everyone agreed, it seems, about Ignatius' authority within the Christian community at Antioch. And he refers to struggles within the church at Antioch that eventually seem to have subsided. What's interesting, though, is we do not know why Ignatius was arrested. But by the time he's writing these letters, he's on his way to Rome under arrest. He's with Roman soldiers on his way to Rome. It's difficult to know what happened precisely, But there may be a link between the two things I've mentioned, between the problems within the church at Antioch, that he obviously was involved in in some way, and his arrest. It's quite plausible that disturbances within the Christian community that involved Ignatius resulted in Ignatius being arrested. So it's just a possibility. What's clear, though, is not everyone agreed with his leadership of the church there, and we'll soon perhaps see why. He has a very specific understanding of what church leadership should be, and it's monarchy. Ignatius' letters are very important for understanding the development of notions of martyrdom within early Christianity. He actually discusses this frequently. He looks forward to his potential death. And you couldn't find someone more excited about being martyred than Ignatius, I don't think. For example, when he's writing to the group of Christians in Rome, and he's anticipating the fact he's going to be in Rome, he's arrested, he's on his way to Rome with soldiers, this is what he has to say to the followers of Jesus in Rome. I'm writing to all the churches and am insisting to everyone that I die for God of my own free will, unless you hinder me. I implore you, do not be unseasonably kind to me. Let me be food for the wild beasts, through whom I can reach God. I am God's wheat, and I am being ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I might prove to be pure bread. Better yet, coax the wild beasts, that they may become my tomb and leave nothing of my body behind, lest I become a burden to someone once I have fallen asleep. Then I will truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ, when the world will no longer see my body. Pray to the Lord on my behalf, that through these instruments I might prove to be a sacrifice to God. You couldn't get more excited about dying than this. This is a bit odd, you could say, in comparison to what evidence we've seen so far for martyrdom. We've definitely seen indications that, first of all, Christians can be socially harassed, and that once in a while this can lead to violence and death. And that, yes, when Christians died, it was very traumatic. And so the notions of martyrdom began to build around that. Even in the Gospel of Mark, we had the idea of suffering with Christ. Pick up your cross and follow Christ. So already you have plenty of evidence of the development of notions around dying because you are a follower of Jesus. And this is what is called martyrdom. The word martyr comes from the Greek for witness. But here we have something that's quite different than just a recognition that some Christians face physical uh, threat and death to the point of just excitement about the ultimate discipleship idea being dying for Christ. Here it's actually expressed as to be a perfect disciple, Ignatius believes, the best thing to happen to him would be to die. So in that way, it's a bit peculiar. But this sort of sentiment comes to become more and more important with time. And all kinds of ideas start to build up around this idea of martyrdom. So on his way to Rome, he writes a variety of letters. Remember that... uh, Being arrested in Roman times doesn't quite mean what being arrested is today. Quite often it would be the equivalent of house arrest, so that you would have freedom for people to come visit you. You'd have freedom to write letters and to have them sent off to someone. But you have soldiers with you taking you on your way to Rome. What happens while he's on his way to Rome is he passes through Asia Minor, writes to the Christian communities there, and also a lot of the members of the Christian community send emissaries to visit. Ignatius, if if he's in a nearby city at the time. He writes these letters in about 110 CE to various churches, including Ephesus, that you're familiar with, Smyrna, that you were familiar with from John's Apocalypse, Magnesia, which is right near Ephesus, Laodicea, maybe a half hour walk away from Colossae, you read the letter to the Colossians. So Ignatius writes to Laodicea, which is right near Colossae. So these are cities you're familiar with already, and he's writing to communities we've already studied to some degree. He writes to them with a very particular understanding of what he feels should be the basis of running the churches. And he writes to them also trying to cope with what he sees as threats to the stability of the churches, especially opponents that have particular views that are different than his own. Followers of Jesus who have different ways of following Jesus than he does. And he's trying to get the churches on his side in regard to what following Jesus in, involves. The situation that he addresses in these letters and his response to it. it. Gives us an avenue into these opponents, into this diversity of early Christianity, into what has traditionally been called heresies. But that's a bit of a value judgment to call it a heresy. There's debate about the opponents of Ignatius. The, the main debate among scholars has to do with Did Ignatius have two main types of opponents he perceived within the communities he wrote to in Asia Minor, two main types of Christianity that he objected to, or was there just one type of Christianity that he objected to that happened to blend together two different things? I would suggest to you that there's two groups that are being dealt with here, two main types of Christianity that Ignatius identified as dangerous. And I'm going to work through each of these two a little bit. Let's talk first about the, what are, by scholars, labeled the Docetists. We've touched on this last week. What we said about Johannine Epistles was that we have a schism taking place within the Johannine Epistles. Remember that last week? And the schism was over how to view Jesus. Both John the Elder and his opponents have a high Christology, a very divine Jesus, you could call it. However, the difference between them, remember, was over how to view the degree to which Jesus was flesh. In the view of John the Elder, those opponents were downplaying the fleshliness of Jesus, the humanness of Jesus. Whether or not they denied the fleshliness of Jesus altogether is hard to know. But if they did, they were docetists. Docetists are followers of Jesus who said it only seemed like Jesus was human. Just to remind you of it, the Greek term doceo is where we get docetist from. Scholars came across doceo seeming, appearing to be something in connection with Jesus' fleshliness in Ignatius's epistles. And then scholars developed this concept of docetism to describe followers of Jesus who say that Jesus only seemed to be human, only seemed to be flesh, only seemed to suffer in a human way only seemed to need to eat human food, appeared to be human, but wasn't really. So Ignatius is our first clear evidence of this type of situation, where you could have followers of Jesus who say that Jesus was never truly human. So let's work our way through Ignatius' particular scenario and look at who he combats on this side of the fence here, on the Docetic side We'll work through a few passages here that will explain what docetism is and then we'll see how he's responding to it. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 7 to 8. So when he's writing to the followers of Jesus at Ephesus, he warns them about other followers of Jesus who have certain opinions. And this is what he says. For there are some who maliciously and deceitfully are accustomed to caring about the name while doing other things unworthy of God. So, so far we've got it clear that the people he's objecting to aren't outsiders. We're talking about followers of Christ. The name is the name of Christ. So, some Christians have certain views that he's objecting to, and he thinks they are unworthy of God, that they're malicious, and that they're deceitful. Remember, this is very value judgment loaded. We're not going to, as historians say, okay, the opponents of Ignatius were malicious and deceitful. That's the end of our historical investigation. No. Obviously, it's his opinion that they're malicious and deceitful. And it's because they have different opinions than his own that he labels them that. You must avoid them as wild beasts, for they are mad dogs that bite by stealth. You must be on your guard against them, for their bite is hard to heal. There is only one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and unborn, God in man, true life in death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering and then beyond it, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so far we don't have the same language yet. We don't have the Keo in this section. But together with what we're going to come to, this is already leading to it, isn't it? Ignatius is saying Jesus was both flesh and spirit to counter people who are saying he's only spirit, that he's both born and unborn, to counter people who said, he's never really born as a human being. And that he suffered is emphasized here as well. To counter people who say that because Christ was never fully human, he didn't suffer as a human. Let's move ahead to another letter, the letter to Trallis. Trallis is also on the western coast of Asia Minor, Turkey, nearby Ephesus again. We're in the same general geographical region. his letter to the Trallians, chapters 9 and 10, we get further evidence of this type of opponent. The ascetic opponents that we're talking about here he's writing to the followers of jesus who are on his side so to speak or at least who he thinks might be on his side this is what ignatius says be deaf therefore whenever anyone speaks to you apart from jesus christ who was of the family of david who was the son of mary who really was born who both ate and drank who really was persecuted under pontius pilate who really was crucified and died while those in heaven and on earth and under the earth looked on, who moreover really was raised from the dead when his father raised him up, who his father, that is, in the same way will likewise also raise us up in Christ Jesus, who believe in him, apart from whom we have no true life. Now look at the language that Ignatius is using. We haven't yet have the seeming stated, and we're going to soon in a passage. But already he's countering people who think that Jesus appears to be or seems to be human with the language of truly or really, to contrast it. He really was crucified. He really was persecuted. He really was raised from the dead. He ate and drank. He really was born. This is all language to counter people who are saying he only seemed to be born. He only apparently ate and drank. He only seemed to suffer. Look what he says in chapter 10 there, right in the same passage. But if, as some atheists, that is, unbelievers say, he suffered in appearance only, there's doceo, while they exist in appearance only, why am I in chains? And why do I want to fight with wild beasts? If that is the case, I die for no reason. What is more, I'm telling lies about the Lord. So here's this first occurrence of doceo language. And then he makes fun of them. They, they only seem to exist. So this is the very clear statement of the docetic nature of the opinion of these other followers of Jesus. We're seeing that within the communities of followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, there's a variety of opinions on how to view Jesus. And then that view of Jesus will have implications on a variety of practices, because if you view Jesus as never truly human... How likely are you to say that the central ritual that you engage in is the thanksgiving meal in which you remember the body and blood of Jesus? For Paul's communities, one of the central rituals, one of the central practices of following Jesus is to have a thanksgiving meal together. First Corinthians, we read about that. And the symbolism of it was that you were eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. In some of the Gospels, you have Jesus' Last Supper and himself instituting this ritual and saying, eat this in remembrance of my body, my flesh, and drink this in remembrance of my blood, to remember my death. What I'm trying to point out to you is the beliefs we're seeing here among some followers of Jesus in Asia Minor have implications for other things, including practice. Namely, they're not likely to have a Eucharistic meal, a Thanksgiving meal, that involves remembering the body and blood of Jesus if there never was a body and blood of Jesus and that this has implications for a different picture of Christianity altogether doesn't it that's just one example of how different beliefs can Im- be interacting with practices and you can have different things going on within different Jesus groups in areas like Asia Minor let's look at uh, one final section on these docetic opponents before we go on to another set of opponents that Ignatius perceives Let's look at his letter to the Smyrnians. His letter to the Smyrnians extensively deals with these docetic opponents. Take a look at chapter 1 and following of his letter to the Christians at Smyrna. Smyrna, again, is on the western coast of Asia Minor, right near Ephesus. I glorify Jesus Christ, the God who made you so wise. For I observe that you are established in an unshakable faith, having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of Lord Jesus Christ in both body and spirit. Notice how Ignatius, in many places always has these two concepts in his mind, body and spirit, body and spirit. And firmly established in love by the blood of Christ. He's always talking about blood and flesh when it comes to Christ. Totally convinced with regard to our Lord that he is truly of the family of David with respect to human descent, son of God with respect to the divine will and power, truly born of a virgin, baptized by John in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him. Truly nailed in the flesh for us under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch. In order that he might raise a banner for the ages through his resurrection for his saints and faithful people. Whether among Jews or among Gentiles in the one body of the church. Chapter 2. For he suffered all these things for our sakes. In order that we might be saved. And he truly suffered. Now let me, before I read more here, let me underline something here. We already noted that if you have followers of Jesus who do not think that Jesus was flesh, it'll have implications for their practices and their rituals, and they'll have we'll have a different configuration of what a Christian group is if they have these different beliefs. Another important implication that we're getting at here, though, is this, that many followers of Jesus that we've encountered, though not all, thought of the death of Jesus in the flesh as having some sort of saving value. If you start to have followers of Jesus who do not believe that Jesus was ever flesh, they're not likely to have much of a, an importance for the role of Jesus' death, are they? Within their whole worldview. So that their explanation of salvation is likely to be quite different. Let me continue here, though. I'm in chapter 2 of Smyrna still. For he suffered all these things for our sakes in order that we might be saved. So there was the sentiment that led me into that whole thing about salvation being tied with the death of Jesus. For Ignatius but not for these opponents and he truly suffered just as he truly raised himself not as certain unbelievers say that he suffered in appearance only there's Dakeo again and here goes his he has a normal routine he once again makes fun of them as well they don't they only exist in appearance he does that a couple times it is they who exist in appearance only indeed their fate will be determined by what they think they will become disembodied and demonic. On and on it goes, though, through chapters 3, 4, and 5. You have more and more about these people that he objects to. And he says things like this, For I know and believe that he was in the flesh even after the resurrection. So not only is Ignatius a Christian who believes Jesus was fleshly during his life, but he emphasizes that he was still fleshly after the supposed resurrection. And he goes on to talk about flesh and blood and being composed of flesh throughout this chapter 3. Chapter 4, let's see more of what Ignatius is saying about these opponents and what to do. Remember, he's talking to followers of Jesus who he believes will be more on his side and telling them to not have anything to do with these other followers of Jesus. Now I am advising you these things, dear friends, knowing that you are of the same mind. But I am guarding you in advance against wild beasts in human form. Men whom you must not only not welcome, but if possible, not even meet. Don't even have anything to do with these people, is his strategy in trying to deal with these followers of Jesus who believe Jesus only seemed to be human. Chapter 5 has more of the same. More of the people who deny, as he puts it, who deny Jesus and deny that he was clothed in flesh, to use the phrase that Ignatius used in that chapter. Let's jump ahead here to chapter 7 and 8. Still talking about these opponents, still saying to avoid them, still emphasizing the suffering, the passion of Jesus. I'm partway into chapter 8. Let no one do anything that has to do with the church without the bishop. Only that Eucharist, Thanksgiving meal, which is under the authority of the bishop, is to be considered valid. Wherever the bishop appears, there let the congregation be. He's starting to indicate here that there's more than one meeting, too. These followers of Jesus who think Jesus only seemed to be human, are ne- they're not even necessarily meeting together with the followers of Jesus that Ignatius is writing to. Even though this is an obscure, small movement, there's more than one group of Jesus followers in places like Ephesus, maybe meeting in different house churches. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Cave, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license.